You're listening to a presentation of The Rising. We're always encouraged to know God is changing lives through this ministry. If you have a story to share of how God is working in your life, please let us know and send an email to stories at wearetherising.com. Now, prepare your heart and mind to hear a word from God. Hey, how many of y'all come from a small town? Like, like a town smaller than Norfolk or Chesapeake or Virginia Beach, maybe like Culpeper, Virginia, you know, like a, just a small town. You, where do you come from? Where do you come from? Grantham, North Carolina? I love it when people from small towns tell us where they're from. They're like, you know where Raleigh is? It's about an hour and a half from there. It's like, okay, so nowhere near Raleigh. How many people are in your town? Maybe 500. Okay, I think you have us be for like the smallest town ever. Who else comes from a small town? Who else comes from a small town? You, right, right back here. Where do you come from? Where? Ports in Georgia. How many people are there? Under 500? Are you kidding me? Like, do you have a stoplight there? One. Okay, great. Does anybody think they have that B? Anybody come from a smaller town? Yeah, how about you? Where are you from? From where, Alabama? I've never heard of that. Does that exist? Is, okay, that is... How many people in your town? Two. <laughs> Maybe 250. All right, and where is it, where is it near? Was where? Birmingham. Okay, I was like, I don't think I've heard of that, but I have heard of Birmingham. How far away is it from Birmingham. 40, okay, so it's not anywhere near close. All right. Thanks so much. <laughs> See, here's the thing. Like, I'm from Norfolk, Virginia, and so I don't know what it's like to be from a small town uh, because the city of Norfolk has about a quarter of a million people in it. Uh, but I've heard, like, I've met people from small towns, and I'll hear their stories. And there's this one thing that people from small towns always talk about. Like, they always get excited about this. And this is just a thing I've discovered in a small town. Like, the history of that small town revolves around one thing happening. Um, like, this thing happens, and it's the talk of the town. Everybody takes notice. Like, people from small towns, they, they remember several things. They remember, uh, like, their favorite birthday that they ever celebrated. They remember when they graduated from high school. They remember their first date, their first kiss. But they also remember this one thing that takes place in the town. And when this happens in the town, it changes and transforms that town forever. And it's the arrival of the Walmart. Like... Everyone from a small town always talks about the day that the Walmart came, right? Like when there's news that the Walmart is coming, that's all the town talks about for like months and months and months. And people are like, hey, have you heard the Walmart is coming? And they're like, oh yeah, I heard about that like months ago. And like, for real, you heard about it? And then people drive past the construction of the Walmart, like while it's being constructed. And it's almost like in a small town, time isn't measured with, with a BC or AD, but it's BW and AW, right? Like, like before the Walmart, life was this way, but then the Walmart came and life was this. And it's like all people can ever talk about in a small town. Like this town takes notice. And then when the Walmart gets here, the conversation is always, hey, what do you want to do tonight? I don't know. Let's go hang out at the Walmart. Right? Like, this is what people do in small towns too. It's like, hey, do you want to go out with me? Yeah, sure. Where do you want to go on a date? How about the Walmart? Like, this is, this is the center of people's lives in a small town. It's all about the Walmart. And, and so it, it's hard for me to, to understand that because, like I said, I'm from, from Norfolk, Virginia. But, um, but I think I can relate 
in a little way in that several, maybe a year or so ago, we got word that Ikea was coming here to Norfolk, right? Like for me, when I heard that there was an Ikea coming to Norfolk, I almost lost myself. Like I was so excited because Ikea, for those of you who don't know, Ikea is like the Disney world for Swedish furniture, right? Like if you are an adult, you owe it to yourself to spend a full day in Ikea. It is so amazing. But I heard that Ikea was coming to town, and like the news wrote about it. It was this big thing. It was all over the interwebs. And when people found out that Ikea was coming to town, like my news feed on Facebook blew up. People were losing their mind that they were going to finally be able to get Swedish meatballs in the vicinity of just driving to like just a few minutes, right? So... There was just this thing about Ikea that when we heard it was coming, man, people I knew got super excited. And I started thinking about that, that, that in a small town, when people hear that the Walmart is coming to town, we're getting a Walmart. This is going to be so awesome. When I, when I heard that Ikea was coming to town, like the whole city took notice. I mean, there were news articles written about this. When I started thinking about the amount of tension, uh, uh, attention that's given to a Walmart or an Ikea, I started thinking... You know, I believe that the city should take just as much notice when a church exists in its vicinity. Like, when the church exists in a city, that city should take notice. That, sh- that city, oh, watch himself, that city should be on alert and take notice. The reason is because this, the church is a move of God that transforms everything. See, I think, though, when you think about the church today and the amount of attention that a city or that the people in a city uh, take note to, to a church, they, they, they don't really take notice like they do for a Walmart or an Ikea. The reason is because what we've done with the church in this day and age is we've made it this place for the saved, sanctified saints of God to sit on a Sunday and it becomes a social club. Like for so many people, that's what the church is. It's this social club, this country club filled with Christians. But I believe that the church should be a great move of God that the city takes notice of. That when a church exists in a city, that city should get better. People should take notice and say, I am so glad that that church exists in my city because there's this revolution that's taking place here. But what we've done is we've made the church into something that it's not. And what I want to do throughout this series, we've been in the series called Until Jesus Runs This Town. We're in the third week of this series, and what we've been trying to do is recapture what it means to be the church. Because you and I have all been taught a lie about the church. And it goes like this. This is the building. This is the steeple. Open the doors. Wiggle your fingers. Yeah. See all the people. But the truth is, this is the building. You don't need a steeple. Open the doors, and there's the church. Because the church is a gathering of people who've come together saying, we are on a mission, which is the definition of a movement. See, the church was first designed to be a movement of God, this revolutionary thing that when it existed in a city, people took notice, and they said, what's going on here? I want to be a part of that. And so what we've been trying to do throughout this series is recapture what it means to be the move of God, because I don't know about you, but I am not satisfied with us being a country club for Christians who sit in seats on Sunday morning, but I want to be a move of God in this city that transforms things, that makes a difference, that sees people's lives revolutionized and changed forever. That's what I want to be a part of. So 
if we're going to be this move of God in our city, if we're going to be this, this gathering of people who are on a mission that people take notice of, I believe that we need to recapture some things that we've lost. And so what I want to do is I want to look back at the church 2,000 years ago when it first launched as a movement and see what did they do then so that we can reclaim some of those things now. Because I believe if we want to see God move in our midst like they saw back then, then we need to do some of the things that they did. And so what I want to do is I want to take us back 2,000 years ago and see how these Christians lived. Because you and I, we're here today because of their faith then and there. We're here today because they lived out this faith in such a way that the movement launched itself all the way to where we are today. And now it's our turn. And the question is, will we rise up to meet with these Christians of ages ago to live out this faith that we believe so that we can see a transformation take place in this city, or will we simply sit stagnant, pat ourselves on the back and feel good about ourselves? And so 2,000 years ago, here's what happened. Jesus was a real person who really lived about 6,000 miles away in ancient Israel. Israel at the time, it was, it was ruled by, by uh, the Roman regime, and uh, we know that Jesus really lived. He was a historical person. There's historical evidence that he really lived. So it's not a question as to whether or not did Jesus live, but the question is, what, what, who was Jesus? Because Jesus claimed to be something. See, Jesus said that he was the son of God. And he showed that he was the son of God through the miracles that he performed. But there was something else to his message that was really controversial and really subversive. See, one of the things that Jesus said was that he came to bring a whole other kingdom. Like a whole new way of living. And because he was talking about this new kingdom, this kingdom of heaven that's come down here to earth, and there's, whole, there's this whole new way that you and I can live, uh, some of the people in the Roman government and some of the people of the day didn't like that because it was, it was, um, it was uh, competition to their kingdom. It was competition to the Roman Empire. So Jesus talks about this kingdom of God and that, that he's the one to lead the way. Well, the Roman government hears about this and, and they, uh, you, you know, this is the kind of message that'll get you killed, right? The Roman government hears that Jesus has come to bring this new kingdom and they're like, wait, there's already a kingdom established and it's ours. And then there was a, a religious system of the day, the, the Jewish religious system that didn't like some of the ways that Jesus was attracting followers because Jesus was saying life is found only in me, not in following religious rules and regulations. And the Jewish system, the Jewish leaders, they didn't like that because that's where their power was. Follow the rules, do the regulations, and you'll be good with God. Jesus says, no, you already are good with God, and I've come to let you know. And so Jesus preaches this message, this message of, of inclusion and love and grace and hope in this whole new kingdom that you and I get to be a part of. And it's subversive. And ultimately, it's a message that got him killed. See, Jesus even said that, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to be arrested and betrayed and crucified, but I don't want you to be mistaken. When I'm crucified, when I'm hanging on that cross on that hill, you may be sad thinking they're taking his life, but I want to let you know I'm laying my life down. He said, nobody takes my life, but I'm going to lay my life down because three days later, I'm going to pick it back up again. Here's, here's how Jesus said it during his ministry. John chapter 10, verse 17, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. 
No one takes it from me, but I lay down my life on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. What Jesus was explaining is, listen, the reason why I came and I started this three-year-long ministry is so that I could ultimately go to the cross because I've come to live a perfect life, a life you can't live. So that when I go to the cross, I will willingly exchange my life for your life. I will die in your place so that you can have life, so that your sins can be forgiven, your sins can be washed away, and you can be reunited with God. And so I've come to lay down my life willingly. No one takes it from me. But watch out now, because three days later, boom, 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 boom. I'm going to take my life back up. I'm not going to pass out and have somebody resuscitate me, but I'm going to be dead. I'm going to lay down my life, paying for your life, so that three days later I can roll the stone out of the way of the tomb and I can walk out. I'm taking up my life again. And so Jesus said this would happen, and he did exactly what he said he would do. Jesus laid down his life on the cross. Three days later, he rose again from the dead. And then this movement of the church begins. See, he gets his disciples together on this mountain in Galilee. And he says, listen, I've come to launch this movement. I've been in ministry for the past three years. You've been following me all this time. I've been teaching you and leading you. But now I'm about to ascend into heaven. But before I ascend into heaven, I want to give you your marching orders. Because I assembled you for the past three years to follow me around. He's talking to his disciples, his followers, so that you can take what you got from me and give it to others. So he gets them on top of this mountain. And he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now I'm giving it to you. I want you to go into all the world and teach people the good news that there's a God who loves them. Make them disciples. Let them know that there's a way that they can live for me and through me and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I will be with you forever till the end of the age. Jesus gave them what's called the Great Commission. This is in Matthew chapter 28. But when Jesus stands before his disciples and he tells them this, go into all the world and make disciples, he's not just telling them this, he's telling us this. When he says to them, I will be with you forever, Till the very end of the age, he's not just talking to them, he's talking to you and I. And so on Wednesday, when you're discouraged at your job, you just got to remember, wait, God is with me. God isn't in some place that I go and visit on a Sunday morning, but God is with me. Because he said, I will be with you forever till the very end of the age. And so he tells these guys, I want you to go and spread the word. Go and be this movement in the world. Now they had a choice. Do we do what he told us to do? Or do we sit stagnant and do what we want to do? Well, Jesus ascended into heaven and they said, well, I guess he was serious about it. Maybe we should go do what he said to do. And so what they do is they, they, they get together with, with some other people who witnessed the resurrection and they start meeting together, about 120 of them. They start meeting in this upper loft of somebody's house in the city of Jerusalem. So the savior that they've just spent three years with has been crucified, but he resurrected and now he's ascended into heaven. And then these 120 people who knew Jesus, who heard about Jesus, who saw him resurrect, are now meeting together trying to figure out what are our next steps. And by the way, when this took place in Jesus' life, at the end of his life, it all happened around Passover. See, Jesus was crucified on the weekend of Passover. Passover was a Jewish festival where they celebrated the time that the Jewish people left the nation of Israel. See, they were held captive in Israel. 
God shows up to a guy named Moses and he says, I want you to lead my people out of Egyptian captivity, but I'm going to send some plagues on Egypt to convince the Pharaoh of Egypt to let them go. The last plague I'm going to bring is the plague of death. I'm going to kill the firstborn in all of Egypt because Pharaoh needs some convincing to let you go. There's no way he's going to let you go unless I hit him where it hurts. But in order to save the people of Israel, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a lamb and slaughter it. Take the blood of the lamb and put it on your doorposts. That way when the angel of death comes by, the angel will see the blood of the lamb and you will be saved by the blood of the lamb. He won't come in and you'll be saved from death. So what the nation of Israel did was they did just that. They slaughtered lambs. Jesus is the lamb of God. They put the blood of the lamb over their doorposts so that when death came to take them, it saw the blood of the lamb and it passed over them. That's why it's called Passover because the angel of death passed over their house. In the same way, Jesus became the lamb of God who was sacrificed for you and I so that we are saved by the blood of the lamb and he saves us from death so that we can experience true life. So it's during the Passover that all these people gather into the city of Jerusalem, pilgrims from all over, thousands of people gather into the city of Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And it's at this time that Jesus is crucified. And this is something that's going on right then and there, right? And so for people in Jerusalem, like they heard about Jesus. They know about this guy named Jesus. See, when we talk about it, it's this thing that happened way back then there. But for them, they're like, oh yeah, there's the hill right over there. Like that's the hill right up there that he's been crucified on. Like they could see it, it was right there. And then, and then when you talk about where he was buried, I mean, these were people who were like, yeah, so, so he was crucified on that hill just right over there, like just a couple miles away, we can see it. And then he, he was taken down off the cross and he was buried in this tomb over here. Like it's right over here, I, I could take you to it. Like for them, in the city of Jerusalem during Passover, this was something they, they had seen. They saw Jesus crucified, they saw him buried. Thousands of people heard about this Jesus who gave his life. And then what happens is about 50 days later is the day of Pentecost. This is the Jewish festival where the Jews celebrated the receiving of the law. So what happens is Moses leads Israel out of Egyptian captivity and he brings them to Mount Sinai. It's on Mount Sinai that God gives them the law, the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. And this is called Pentecost. Well, what would happen during Jesus' day is people would show up to Jerusalem, thousands of people as pilgrims, to celebrate Passover. And then they'd stay in Jerusalem for about 50 days to celebrate Pentecost. And this is where we pick up in the story with these early Christians. See, Jesus was just crucified. He's ascended to heaven. And now they're meeting in this upper loft of a house. And Pentecost is coming. And it's on the day of Pentecost, again, thousands of people from all over the world are in Jerusalem celebrating these festivals. It's on the day of Pentecost that God pours out his spirit on these believers in this room. And they get this boldness, this courage, this energy, and they go out into the city and start telling people about Jesus. They start telling people about how much he loves them and cares for them. And then their ringleader, Peter, he gets up in front of thousands of people and he preaches this sermon. And he's telling them about this Jesus who like just, just a couple months ago, you remember a couple months ago over on the hill over there, that Jesus, he was crucified on the cross. You guys saw it. You remember? Yeah, just, just a couple months ago. And then he was buried. But here's the thing. You probably heard rumors of his resurrection. They're true. 
We've seen him. We saw him resurrected. And if somebody was like, hey, how do you know he resurrected? Peter would be like, I know. Because like, I saw him die. And then like three days later, he was having breakfast with me. It was the craziest thing. Right? Like, I saw him die. Are you sure about that? Give me the evidence that Jesus resurrected. Okay, I saw him die, and then we're having fish the next day. Right? Like, this was the evidence for Peter. He had seen it. He had experienced it. And so he's telling all these people in the city of Jerusalem, thousands and thousands of people, just a couple months ago you saw Jesus crucified? Let me tell you, he rose again from the dead. And we've seen it. We've witnessed it. And then... He says this in Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. Again, you all know this. This is what he's telling the crowd. You've seen the miracles. You've seen how he's interacted with people. You heard about the crucifixion. You can see the hill. It's right over there. You saw this. You know this. Jesus came from God. Verse 23, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. So what happens is Peter stands up in front of thousands of people who are there for Passover. Some of them might have even been in the crowd that shouted, crucify him to Jesus. They had a hand in seeing Jesus crucified. And Peter says, listen, the guy who was here with us just like a couple months ago, he was God in the flesh. And you killed him. And the people are like, oh, snap. Dang, yeah. You know, I was here when all that happened. And I thought he was just, I just, there were people shouting. And I was like, yeah, crucify him. And I just joined in with the crowd. I didn't really know what was yeah, I guess. Oops. <laughs> right? like, like, this is the reaction of the people. Jesus, Peter says, Jesus was the Son of God who came to deliver us from our sins. You heard about the miracles. You saw him. You knew him. But you had a hand in killing him. And you know, that's a message for each and every one of us. When Jesus went to the cross... It wasn't because a mob of people forced him to go to the cross. Remember, he said, I lay down my life willingly. When he was nailed to the cross, it wasn't the nails that held him to the cross. But it was your sin and my sin that held him to the cross. The reason Jesus went to the cross is because he thought about you. It's because he thought about me. And he knew that if he didn't lay down his life in our place, then we would be forever separated from God. And so Jesus went to the cross willingly, and it wasn't the nails that held him to the cross. It was your sin and my sin. And this is essentially what Peter says to the people, that our sin drove Jesus to the cross. We are the ones who killed him. And then the people hear that, and it's like, oh, well, what do we do now? And this is exactly what they say uh, in response to that. Acts chapter 2, verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? 
They were cut to the heart. They were convicted. By the way, there's a difference between conviction and guilt. Conviction leads to change. Guilt leads to shame. Like, God's design is not for you to feel guilty because he never wants you to feel ashamed. God comes to bring you life and to get rid of everything that shames you. But God's desire is that we would be convicted to the point where we would change. And that's what happens with these people. They are convicted. They're cut to the heart. And they say, what do we do now? You're right, Peter. We saw this Jesus. We, he was right over there. We walked with him. We heard about the miracles. We saw him with our own eyes. We heard about the resurrection. What do we do now? How do we make up for this? What's our response? And here's what Peter says to the crowd, Acts 2.38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number daily. They say, what do we need to do about this? And Peter says, repent, because they already believe. Hey, we believe this message. We believe that Jesus was who you say he was. We believe that Jesus was the son of God who died on the cross and rose again from the dead. What do we need to do with this belief? And Peter says, repent. The word repent means to turn around. And so you're going your own way. You repent. You turn around and you go God's way. You say, I'm not going to follow my way. I'm going to follow God's way. I'm not going to be the leader of my life anymore. I'm going to make Jesus the leader of my life. He said, repent and be baptized. Be immersed in the water because when we're immersed, the scriptures teach that our old self is buried and our new self comes up. We're a brand new creation. And he explains what happens in baptism. What you just saw earlier when those five people got baptized, here's what happened. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. He explains why. For the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's in baptism that we reach out and grab hold of the gift God has given us. It's in baptism that God meets us in the water and washes away our sins. It's in baptism that God pours out his spirit into us so that we can live with his guidance and his power now. This is what takes place in baptism. And so what happens is these people hear this message and they say, okay, we believe that Jesus died, that he rose again from the dead. What do we do now? Make him the leader of your life and be baptized. And when this happens, your sins will be forgiven and God's spirit will come to live inside of you, ultimately leading you and guiding you to live out and experience true life. And it says that day, 3,000 people heard Peter's message and the church grew from 120 people to 3,000 people that day. This is when the movement of God really gains momentum. So this is how the church first begins. People hear the message about Jesus. They say, we want in. They're baptized into him, and they begin to follow him. And then we get to see in the book of Acts how the church lives and how they operate. We see their faith in action. We see it in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. So 3,000 people are baptized that day. The church grows to 3,120 people. And here's what the people do afterwards, Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves 
to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. What happens is these early Christians place their faith in Jesus. And then they engage in some activities. And as they engage in those activities, people take notice and they join their ranks. It says, the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. See, there's something that happens in the city of Jerusalem where these people take notice. They, they see how these new Christians are living and they're like, I want what you got. There's something different in your life. There's something, oh my gosh, a Walmart just came to town. I'm like, is an Ikea moving in? Wait, there's something going on with this gathering of people. And they're, they're living differently. They're seeing things differently. They're experiencing their attitude. Their, the, the way that they live is so different. I want what they got. People are drawn to the early church. And it said, the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. You know, I think there's something in the way that they live. I think that there's something in this passage that we can learn from. I think there's something that if we just analyze it for a moment, we'll see. If we do some of the things they did, we'll start to see some of the great things that they saw. And so what are the four things that they began to do in the book of Acts? How did the early church live? Well, it's right here. It's Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves to these four things, the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And so the four things that they engaged in were these things. They devoted themselves, number one, to the word, number two, to community, number three, to communion, and finally, they devoted themselves to prayer. So it says they devoted themselves to four things, the word, community, communion, and prayer. I just want to take a moment to go into each one of these to see how do we live this out in our own life. First, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the word of God. See, back then, they didn't have uh, the scriptures like we do. They didn't have a hard copy of the Bible. They didn't have a Bible app that they could open up and, and, and read along with. So what they had to do was they had to gather together to listen to the apostles teach the word of God. The first thing they did was they devoted themselves to the word of God. They said, God's word is going to be a priority in my life. That's what devoted means. They committed themselves to the word of God. We're going to live out what God says in his word. We grew up in culture. We grew up in society. We grew up in a family learning this, operating this way. This is how my friends do things. But wait, wait, wait. I just made Jesus the leader of my life. And so I'm going to devote myself, commit myself to his word. And so if his word says that I'm going to live it, I know I was raised this way, but God's word says this. I know culture says this, but God's word says this. They devoted themselves to the word of God. They said, this is going to be my standard that I live from. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. This is the equivalent, too, of the sermon, right? They got together and they said, I'm going to hear what the man of God has to say for my life. You know, when I get up here to preach like this, I don't get up here just to give you a TED Talk. 
right? Like this isn't just some inspirational, motivational speech that I should take on the road and give in high school auditoriums, but I get up here to bring God's word to you. Now, now there's nothing special about me. I mean, I'm a person just like you. The only difference is God has called me to lead this church. And so when I get up here or when anybody stands on this platform to preach to you, what they're doing is they're preaching the word of God to you, not just giving nice suggestions. You know, I think sometimes we fail to see some traction in our life because we view the word of God that's presented to us as a nice suggestion. Maybe if you have time, if you think about it, you might should try and implement this in your life. Like that's how we hear it. Well, maybe I'll get around to it. Pastor, that was a great sermon. That was really nice. Not going to do anything with it, but it was really nice. See, when I get up here to preach to you, I'm bringing the word of God directly to you. And it's for you to take and receive and begin to live it out, right? It's to live it out because you're not changed by the word that you hear. You're changed by the word that you do. And so what happened with the early Christians is they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They said, what's being said, and how do I live that out? Over and over again, I'll, uh, I'll talk with people, and they'll say, Pastor, I need to meet with you. What do you need to meet about? I'm having trouble in my marriage. Okay, you don't need to meet with me. Just do what I preached on already. Pastor, I need to meet with you. What do you need to meet with me about? Well, I just need direction. Y'all need to meet with me. Just do what I preach about on Sunday. Because I'm going to say to you in a meeting at Starbucks, the exact same thing I'm going to say to you on stage. Just do that. And this isn't me being impersonal. It's just I'm just going to say the same thing. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm not that deep, right? I, I'm not that close. Like, everything I have in me, I'm giving to you on stage. That's it, right? So if we meet over a latte, sure, I'd love it if you bought me a coffee. But I'm just going to say the same thing. And so it's not the word that we hear, that changes us is the word that we do. And so for these early Christians, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They just said, we're going to do what they say. We're going to live our life with the word of God as our authority. And so they live it out. Not only do they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, but the second thing is this. They commit to community. They commit to community. It says fellowship in here. I don't, I don't use the word fellowship because fellowship is a real churchy word. I don't like it. But in the Bible, it says fellowship. But they devote themselves to community. And so they get together as community and they say, it's important for us to be together. It's important for us to spend time with one another. And, you know, there was a time about 2,000 years ago where some Christians didn't think they needed to get together. Like when it came time to meeting together as the church, there were some Christians 2,000 years ago who felt like it shouldn't be that much of a priority. I mean, that was them then, there. I mean, all of us make it a priority. But back then, there were some Christians who didn't make it a priority. And here's what Paul said to some Christians through the book of Hebrews. He said, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. See, back then, there were some Christians who were like, maybe I'll go to church. Can you believe that? That people would actually say that? It happened back then. Back then, there were some people who were like, maybe I'll make it. Maybe if my plans don't get in the way. Maybe if I don't have any other obligations, I'll go. And Paul, 
writes to these Christians and he says, let's, let's not stop meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Some people are like, nah, I might not go to church. He said, no, 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 no. Instead, let's commit ourselves. Let's devote ourselves to meeting together, to encourage one another. And all the more as we see the day approaching. When he says that, he's talking about the day that Jesus is going to return. You and I are now closer to Jesus' return than they were back then. And Paul said, we should make it so much a priority, so much of a commitment to be together, to meet together, to encourage one another, to spur one another on, because we're closer now to Jesus returning than we've ever been. But even now, I saw this study that says that the average Christian goes to church once every six weeks. For some churches, it's it's once every four weeks, it's once a month. Like, do you understand what we have available to us? Do you understand just how great it is to be a part of this movement? I mean, listen, if you didn't make it today, just think about all that you would have missed out on. You would have missed out on celebrating this charity water walk that we did yesterday where we raised $5,500 to give to people who don't have clean water. You would have missed out on that video and that celebration. You would have missed out being a part of that. You would have missed out seeing five people get baptized, giving their lives to Christ. If you didn't make it, you would have missed it. What? Why wouldn't you be a part of this? So you can go to breakfast at IHOP? Really? Is that what it is? The pancakes aren't that great. Is that, what else do you have going on on a Sunday morning that's better than this? How awesome is it, man, that we get to be a part of this? How, how great that we get to be a move of God. But here's the thing, we will not be a move of God in this city until we make Sunday morning a priority in our life. Because it's in Sunday morning that you're gonna hopefully get inspired. You're gonna get encouraged. You're gonna get reminded about why we do what we do. You're gonna be uh, in a place where you're gonna be reminded about what's most important. And listen, the reason why we come to church is not because God is checking attendance. It's not an obligation. It's not, well, I have to. It's, I get to. And I don't know about you, man, but I need this. Like, I need this in my life. I need to gather with a group of people and sing to the God who sits on the throne because I need to to be reminded I'm not the one who sits on the throne, but he is. And as I gather with a group of people, I can be reminded of that. I can be reminded of songs like you say, and I can be reminded of the truth of I am who God says I am and not what society says I am, not what the voices inside my head say I am. I'm just reminded of that. I need that. I need a time to be poured into for the word of God to be broken down for me so that I can get that and begin to apply it in my life. I need that in my life. I don't know about you, but I, I need it. I need a time where I can, I can celebrate communion and remember the grace that Jesus gave me on the cross. I need a time to remember that. And so they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They de- devoted themselves to the community. And then third, they devoted themselves to communion. Communion is is something we're actually going to celebrate in a moment where members from our VIP team are going to come and they're going to pass out trays. And in those trays are stacks of cups. The bottom cup has a piece of bread. It reminds us of Jesus' body that was broken for us. The top cup has some juice. It reminds us of his blood that was shed for us. Um, But for them, they committed to communion. They committed to, to getting together and remembering the sacrifice Jesus made for them. You know, Jesus gave us communion as an object lesson, actually. It was in his last meal with his disciples. He sat down with them, 
and he broke some bread and he said, hey, every time you break bread, I want you to remember my body that's broken for you. And then he took some wine and he said, every time you drink wine, I want you to remember my blood that's shed for you so that you can have forgiveness. And so communion is a moment where we're reminded of the grace of God. But more than that, communion is a state of mind. It's a state of being. It's I'm going to live in this place of grace on a daily basis. I'm going to live in a place where I'm reminding myself of who God is and how much he loves me. Because I don't know about you, but I need a constant reminder that I need grace. Because I don't have it all together. And, and I need to know that through the power of the cross, I can overcome. I am more than my thoughts tell me. I am, I am more valuable than I sometimes am led to believe. I, I need to live in this state of grace. And that's what communion is. And so these early Christians devote themselves to living in communion. And then finally, they devote themselves to prayer. Prayer. They, they, they pray not, not for Aunt Josephine's hangnail on her toe. They pray not, would you pray that my cat gets better? But they got together and they prayed prayers of self-examination. God, if there's anything wrong in us, would you take it out? Make us more like you? They prayed... Um, they prayed prayers of gratitude. God, thank you so much for all that you've given us. Thank you so much for the way you've poured out blessings. When you start to pray a prayer of gratitude, it changes your perspective in life. You'll start to love the job that you hate. You'll start to love the wife you've taken for granted. You'll start to love your kids even more and see them as the blessing that they are. When you pray a prayer of gratitude, God, thank you that everything is a gift. They pray prayers of gratitude. They pray bold prayers. God, would you do even greater things in my life? I don't want to just settle, but I want to live for something greater. They begin to pray bold prayers. And then finally, they prayed prayers uh, for God to make opportunities available to them to share the word with other people. Because what we see is it says that God added to their number daily those who are being saved. I really believe that if God is going to work in our midst as the movement that he's called us to be, we need to commit to these four things. The word of God, the community, communion, and prayer. What would it look like in your life if you said, God, I'm going to make your word a priority? I'm going to make this gathering a priority. I'm going to make living in a state of constant communion a priority, and I'm going to pray like you really exist. What would your life look like if you embraced these things? You devoted yourselves to these things. You committed yourself to these things. This is how these early Christians lived. And then what happened was this guy named Paul, who made it his life mission to kill Christians, he became a Christian. He met the resurrected Jesus. He became a Christian. And then he said, I'm going to start churches all over the known world. So he started starting churches all over the place. He traveled all over the place telling them about Jesus. And churches started popping up all over. And people started living this way, devoting themselves to the word, to community, to communion, and to prayer. And there were like these little movements sparking all over the place in all these different cities. And then he goes to this place called Thessalonica. And this brings me to the, to the passage I really want to take you to, Acts chapter 17, verse 6. They go to this place, Thessalonica, and... Um, some of, the, some of the people there hear that these Christians are in town. And they say, you know, they, they've been causing a movement, a stir all over the known world, but here they are in our backyard, and we don't want this in our town. 
And so they go to where they hear Paul is staying, but Paul isn't there. And here's what Acts 17.6 says. When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. See, there's this movement of the church that sparked in Jerusalem. People were devoting themselves to the word, to community, to communion, and to prayer. And and then it's just kind of spread from city to city, town to town. And here they are now in our city. They take notice. They realize where they've been and that they've come here now. They say, these men who have turned the whole world upside down, not who sat in social country clubs, not who gathered just to feel good about themselves. These people who have turned the whole world upside down have arrived in our city now. And we got to do something about it. I just believe that when a church exists in a city, that city should take notice. I believe that a church should be an organization that turns a city upside down, that turns a world upside down. But here's the thing, here's the thing, and here's my main point, and you know this is my main point, and you know I'm about to close because the band is up here, and, and, and I'm about to close, here we go. My main point is this, the church cannot be a movement of God until you become a movement of God. The church cannot become a movement of God until you become a movement of God because the church is a group of people, a gathering of people who have gotten together and say our lives have been forever changed and we want to bring this transformation onto other people. And so it starts with you. It starts with me. They go to Jason's house and they say, these people who have turned the whole world upside down have come here also. And so the question I want to ask you this morning is are you that person? Are you that person? Are you willing to be the person to say, I will be a movement of God. I will stand up. I will rise and be a person who turns my life upside down, my workplace upside down, my family upside down, this world upside down. I will not sit in stagnation, but I will be a person who is known as one who turns the world upside down. And here's the thing. If God did it through them 2,000 years ago, I know he can do it. Do it again, but it takes a community, a group of people, a gathering of people to rise up and say, we got a mission to keep. We got people to reach. If he did it then, I know he'll do it again. Come on, make some noise if you believe it today. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We pray you were inspired and encouraged by today's message. If you'd like to support this ministry financially, sign up to serve on a team, join a group, or just find out more information on The Rising, visit us at wearetherising.com.